صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنرز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 اي Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English-language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Palestine Remembered. Today, we are honoured to have Associate Professor Peter Slezak, who is a dear friend of the show, is a dear friend of Palestine, one of the most fabulous Australian supporters of our cause, and just an all-round superstar. Good morning, Peter. How are you? Thanks so much. That's a, it's a great privilege. Well, you know I'm a big fan, so excuse me for fanboying. <laughs> You've been on the show a couple of times. Our regular listeners will have heard your um, your beautiful voice. Peter, we say in Palestine, you know, us in diaspora who don't get to go to Palestine very often, whenever we see someone who's been to Palestine, we say, let me smell Palestine on you. And we caught up last week uh, at the APAN fundraiser in Sydney, and I could still smell Palestine on you. <laughs> so welcome home, mate. How are you? Thanks so much, Nasser. It's a great honour and a privilege to be visiting there, and of course, and talking to you. Thank you. So tell us about your trip. Why did you go? What was going on? Well, it was a very interesting trip. Uh, there were three of us uh, and, and two filmmakers, um, John uh, Reynolds and Jill, uh, husband and wife filmmaker team, and um, Lee Rhiannon and Rand Khatib. Uh, we were going as the three subjects of this uh, film project, and uh, we travelled in a very extensive meetings all around uh, Palestine. Uh, and so it's a film project, and the material we collected was enough to make uh, several uh, films that they're now working on. Um, a lot of long-form interviews with wonderful people I can talk about. Um, so the project was a film project. Brilliant. That crew is called the Dare to Struggle Film Festival, am I right? Yes, the, the, the team is, is, I guess, part of this, what's called the Dare to Struggle Film Festival as a, a kind of a activist uh, film uh, crew. Yep. And so I'll put a link to uh, their Facebook page in the podcast. So you'll be able to go along and click on that, like the Dare to Struggle Film Festival and see they're posting pictures, just some stills from your trip. So Not just stills, they're posting a daily blog. There's a, 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 a wrote a, a daily diary together with the pictures I took many of the photographs myself, and um, it's uh, we, we waited till we were out of Palestine to avoid any problems um, coming in and out of the borders. But now there's a daily; it's up to about day eleven now or so. It's all up there with with the photographs and an account of each day's uh, events. Fantastic! And so, were you only in Palestine? Well, we started actually in in in, uh, in Beirut, in South Beirut, in the Burj Al Barajne. So you did some filming in Lebanon in a refugee. We filmed in uh, in Lebanon, and that was quite an experience. I've been there before, but I'll talk about that because that's a very uh, moving and and extremely interesting and, and troubling experience to be there. So we started in Lebanon, and then we went through uh, Jordan from Amman into the West Bank, and we we living in the old city, which was a wonderful experience in itself. Uh, we we stayed in the um, uh, just on the Via Dolorosa on uh, the um, Austrian hospice uh, hostel. And uh, that was also extremely interesting to be living in the old city. So so it was quite an experience. Before we talk about the Via Dolorosa, let's go back to Bourgeois Barajne, a refugee yeah. camp for Palestinians that were ethnically cleansed in 1948. 
Tell us a little bit about that, because a lot of listeners wouldn't know just about the conditions in Guj Barashi. Well, look, it's uh, I've been there a few times now, so and it's very heartwarming to be back there and see people I'd met on previous occasions. There's um, a centre there, I think a, um, a, a kindergarten that's funded by um, uh, the, one of the Australian uh, Union uh, um, organisations. So we have uh, close connections there. Um, at, at one level, it's a very shocking place to visit. It's this rabbit warren, this really uh, uh, dusty and, and muddy um, rabbit warren of narrow alleyways with electricity wires hanging all over uh, open. Um, and every year, quite a few people are electrocuted. So it's this quite shocking squalor that people are living in and crowded. I don't know how many uh, uh, thousand people into a, a square mile. So on the one hand, there's this a very difficult life that they're having to live, but making a rich life under very difficult circumstances. The Lebanese government isn't giving them proper um, uh, working conditions. They're very limited in the the amount of work they can do. So so, uh, walking around there, we have to have a guide because you get lost in this this maze of very narrow little streets. It's kind of very colourful in some ways. Young guys are roaring around on on little motor scooters all over the place. And... um, uh, there's barely, a, you know, a, a, an open space anywhere there. We were very fortunate to sit in the rooms of, of several of the people there. We had a minder who took us around and introduced us to people. And we sat in the um, bedroom of one old fellow who had left, uh, was ethnically uh, uh, cleansed in 48. And I can talk about that just briefly. It's one of the accounts that uh, Lee records in the blog. He must be close to 90 now, and um, he happened to go back to his village that was destroyed, and he brought with him a small stone uh, from his village, and he's holding it and showing it to us and telling us through tears uh, of, of how much he wants to go back to his village before he, he dies. And it was very touching and moving for us to be sitting with him mm-hmm. and his family uh, listening to that sort of an experience. So this is one of the original generation of, of the Palestinians who had been expelled um, that's very powerful, and it's very helpful that we have this on film so that this can be be shown. And, of course, their, their per- constant uh, request for us is to tell their story outside to the rest of the world. Indeed, indeed. And that 90-year-old Nakba survivor, Peter, who managed to smuggle a, a stone from his village, I mean, that story is not unique to Palestinians. You know, my father uh, managed to bring back about a kilo of soil from, you know, an old tree uh, in, our, in our grove. And uh, he wow. said, you know, if I if I die before we go home, make sure you sprinkle this on my grave. So oh, dear. Um, we obviously fulfilled that wish for him, but it's not a unique story. Stan Grant, in no. fact, interviewed a Palestinian Nakba survivor who had gone 48, 67, Jordan, Iraq, and mm. interviewed him. And, you know, the only thing that he had with him over that whole 70-year journey was this bag of soil. Amazing, yeah. And yeah. Uh, Stan Grant, actually, in that story, talks about, you know, here he was an Indigenous guy and trying to reconcile his Indigenous connection with dirt and speaking to a Palestinian and, and yeah. just the uh, how that connected them. Peter, the, the tragedy of Lebanon and the Palestinians in Lebanon, it, it just knows no end. I, and I, look, I don't know how much you got into it with respect to those people with the refugees you spoke to, but the challenges they have, it yeah. was always the Paris of the Middle East, but Lebanon's really struggling. I can't imagine what yes. the camps are like. Yeah. And a lot of new refugees have come in from Syria and elsewhere. So it's, and the camp has a lot more uh, of these Palestinians that have fled 
more recently. So it's it's a struggle. But, you know, on the other hand, it's hard to explain this, how positive an experience it is also to be there. It's so inspiring to be among these people, their the, the good nature, their warmth, their friendliness. That's a very important part of the actual experience of being there. The richness of their life and, and the life that they're making there, the families and the education and the, the young ones. Um, it's a complicated, but but on the one hand, a very heartwarming experience as well. That's um, an important part of seeing the difficult of the difficulty of their circumstances. It's beautiful. Um, the other thing we should talk about uh, is, is, of course, in Beirut. While we we're in Beirut, we also visited the um, American University of Beirut and Salman Abu Sitta Center, which uh, you probably would like to hear about. As Absolutely, well. we're a big fan of Salman Abu Sitta here on the show. So, how how was the center? He was. Well, it was lovely because he visited Australia and I got to know him quite well here. We drove him around here and uh, he and his daughter. And um, he actually flew in from Kuwait, I think, to see us. Wow. We, he came in especially to, to be with us. But he, we met with him on one evening and just uh, at his hotel and, and, and had uh, a few bites to eat. But then on the next day, we visited him at the uh, American University of Beirut in his center. He set up a whole center there, which is about the return and it's this mapping project where they have this extensive, detailed account of every Palestinian and every village. And, and they have models. Young people have reconstructed models of every village. So it's this huge, very interesting project. And, and his premises there, there are books and maps. And, and um, he's charming. So I was very privileged to sit and play the role of interviewer and talk to him. And it was all on camera. And he's very eloquent, of course. He's the most beautiful and man. Very entertaining. I mean, he's 86 years old. He's not young, but the amount of energy that's in him. He's still full of beans yeah. and uh, and uh, fiery and very ironic. And and uh, he tells he loves to tell the story about uh, there's a, a Brooklyn Jewish woman now who's living on his land, yeah. and he keeps making fun of her and how 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 she's suffering. She complains about her suffering, yeah. and uh, he pokes fun at her about and, and talks about his life there that that he had and the villages and the fields that she's now living on so um he's charming and and that project is very wonderful at the university well he, so, he uh, was the author of the seminal book the atlas of palestine but one thing he's actually doing is he runs a competition each year for palestinian architects to reimagine their nakba villages redesigned and rebuilt yes, it's, it's yes, a wonderful initiative that's exactly right. And his confidence is that, I mean, most of the uh, uh, refugees who would return don't return to uh, the major city centres. In, so in practical terms, uh, the, the, their homes are, 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 in a sense, available mm -hmm. uh, to go back. Yeah, he, he makes that point. Yeah. I mean, I think there are problems with the, the return, as we know, but, but this is a wonderfully optimistic and, and inspiring uh, vision. No, we, we should hold out a hope. So from Lebanon, you went to Jordan? And into Palestine? Well, we, we stayed overnight in Amman just uh, before we went okay. across uh, the, the, the uh, Allenby crossing there. That's an ordeal. If, you, if somebody hasn't been through there, that's a nightmare. I mean, it's, it's this chaos. It, it obviously is kept that way deliberately. You can have a much more efficient crossing on both sides. The, the Jordanians and the Israeli uh, checking uh, checkpoints uh, are unnecessarily uh, disorganized and chaotic, and you don't know what's going on. Um, anyway, so that's part of the experience. Um, but, of course, once you're in, uh, that's a short bus ride, and we went from there uh, to uh, Jerusalem, Al-Quds, and um, we stayed in, in, in Jerusalem for the, most of the period. So we spoke earlier on, you were staying in a hospice on Via Dolorosa, and the Via Dolorosa yeah. is obviously the, um, the last footsteps of Jesus before his crucifixion. Exactly right, yeah. 
you're, you're Jewish culturally, spiritually, not really religiously. Uh, not at all, no. Did you see any of the Christian pilgrims doing their um, pilgrimages? Well, I didn't see too many this time. On a previous occasion, I was there at Easter, and I've got this wonderful photograph of they all come around the corner there. There's a cafe just opposite the um, the uh, Austrian hospice where we are. There's a cafe right in the corner there, which I often like to see that. And just around the corner into the Via Dolorosa, these little old ladies holding their crosses in their black gear would, would come and sit down there. And I've got some wonderful photographs of these pilgrims Beautiful. coming through there. Uh, doing their their thing on the Via Dolorosa. Um, no, it's a wonderful yeah. place for all of these experiences. There's a Palestinian comic, Amr Zahar, and he talks about, you know, in jest, somebody talking about, you know, how long have you been here? He said, well, you know, Jesus had a coffee here. You know, <laughs> my great-grandfather <laughs> served him. You know, so yeah. Yeah, that sense yeah. of history and, and timelessness you get in the old city is just amazing. No, it's wonderful. Yeah, no, no, it's very nice. So and, and the Austrian hospice is quite a, an interesting place to stay. I mean, it, it was a good choice to go there because you're right in the middle of the old city. Yeah. Um, the other side of it, of course, is, as I'd seen earlier, right outside the door, there was one of these makeshift little barriers and the IDF, four or five or six of them with machine guns. And every now and again, they'll pull aside a young Palestinian guy, check his ID, spread eagle him on the wall, pat him down, dig their knee into his, his back of his leg, and often handcuff them and take them away. We saw that every day. That's right in the middle there. Um, it's, their, their presence is much more visible now than it had been in the past. Yeah. And that's always disturbing. Um, and, of course, at the Damascus Gate entrance, yeah. they're very visible there now in ways that they didn't used to be. So It's one of those things that you know people don't really articulate in their brains. There's no such thing as a benevolent occupation. Oh, There's yeah. flare-ups and you know killing here or stoning there, whatever it might be. But occupation, all of it is violent. 24 7 365 yeah. occupation yeah. is and of course when you're there of course you see these these uh, manifestations of it but if you follow it as we do on on social media and so on the number of times they're shooting dead unarmed civilians and kids yeah. uh, of course fortunately i guess i didn't see anything like that now but you see the the the, the background to that when when you see them rampaging around um in in the old city there and just arbitrarily stopping young palestinians it's 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 very grim over 200 dead so far this year, 40 kids, Gaza still occupied. Did you go specifically just to for this film project? Yes, that was the purpose of the whole trip. It was self-funded. Uh, we paid our own fares and um, there was some support from unions for the filmmakers and so on, but uh, we uh, supported ourselves for the sake of the, the, the initiative and the project. Fantastic. And is it going to be a one long feature piece? or what's... Look, There's several. I think uh, John uh, and Jill Hickson, I forgot her second name before, um, they're making uh, several, given the material they've got. Um, I think one may focus a little bit on my particular angle on this, but uh, uh, there's so much material for various um, uh, venues, I guess, uh, to be made freely available. Um, with a bit of luck, we might be able to still get an interest from one of the mainstream uh, media outlets. But there's so much material there that, uh, as I think I was saying to you, I think from an archival point of view, the long-form interviews we did ought to be just made available as they are, quite apart from editing them, because just listening to each very articulate um, person, uh, and I'll mention a couple of the other most wonderfully inspiring and moving uh, uh, recordings we made, um, they were to just made available. I mean, especially in the case of these older guys, uh, the actual experience uh, who, who were there at the Nakba, this is a rich historical archival material of first-hand experience. Makes and, me uh, invaluable, yeah.
did you have an idea of what you wanted the movie to look like and so you sought out those people or did you just interview Palestinians that you knew you were going to interview but with a hope that you might come up with something and, and it might give itself its own energy or growth? Well, look, it was a bit funny, really. I mean, uh, uh, the filmmaker, John, had certain ideas as to how he wants this to, to be, but my view, we didn't quite agree on this, I have to say candidly, uh, my view was that uh, it's not our story, it's their story. And fortunately, when you just ask them a few leading questions, they talk freely about the mm-hmm. things they want to say. I was very keen Good. to hear their stories. And so I gave a few prompts and I was well enough informed that I could ask a few questions that would be pertinent. But of course, they talked freely and at length about what they themselves wanted to tell us. And I think that's the important mm-hmm. part of the story because that's what, now, however that gets put together, uh, will be up to the filmmakers. But But we have this material and um, as I say, even just taking the interviews on their own at length um, is, is very revealing and very moving. I think it would be good viewing for anybody because we were just intrigued. I mean, we had Hanan Ashrawi, for example, in Ramallah. We had uh, another old fellow from, from Lifta, I'll tell you about. He took us around Lifta, uh, just in, near Jerusalem. And uh, we interviewed Jeff Halper in, in Jerusalem, who has a lot to say. So I can talk about each one of these a little bit, but, but these were all very powerful and uh, moving uh, experiences for us. Um, so so um, we'll see what the end result is. There'll be more than one film. And ha- how's Jeff going? I mean, he's the chair of the Israeli Coalition Against Housing Demolitions, you know, does a lot of good work. Yes, he's yeah. the, the founder of it. I think he's perhaps no longer at the forefront of that. He's, uh, but, but that's still ongoing. As a, We did a tour with them. So they do tours around, as I've done before with Jeff. It's important to say that if people don't know, the Israeli Committee in House, Against House Demolitions is not a, a humanitarian or, or, or you know, um, aid project. It's a form of resistance. Jeff makes that point that this is a Palestinian-led form of resistance, which they are helping to, to for example, they, in some cases, have rebuilt the houses seven, eight times to, to fight back and push back, both symbolically and in practical terms. And so... Um, the, the meeting with Jeff, the interview, was about other things, really. He's written a book just now. Um, I have it sitting here, actually, called Decolonizing Israel, Liberating Palestine. And he's at the forefront of a Palestinian-led move towards a, a secular one state. He's a, a part of, with Ilan Papa and various others, and Palestinians who are in the lead, uh, pushing now for a democratic one state. So we interviewed him about that, and he has really? a lot to say about the politics of it, but also this project. When we brought him out to Australia over a decade ago, he was talking about it then, and, you know, it was a tough sell for us to talk about equality and human rights for all and a separation of church and state and democracy, yeah. you know, where in a country people don't care or don't privilege you based on your religion or faith. So all power to him, and, and certainly that movement, you and I are both there, Peter, but uh, I'm sure one day... All of our leaders will say they were always there. They would never have believed in a two-state solution. Exactly right. Exactly Crazy. Right. Now, the Australian Labor Party was due to recognise Palestine. It was part of their platform. It hasn't happened. It looks like it's not going to happen in this term. But the ABC ran a particularly egregious piece by Peter Warthorn. You wrote a piece to counter it. You didn't get it up at ABC. It wasn't able to be published. That's a long story. They're sometimes a bit reluctant to... Um give due airtime air to an alternative view. In this case, uh, the editor wasn't very sympathetic to my attempts to um, argue pushback. We've got your piece, and it ended up being uh, published in John Minerjew's yes. blog. Uh, we'll put a link to it in the podcast. So, again, we're speaking to Peter Slezak. 
The article's called Justice Delayed is Justice Denied, the Case for a Palestinian State. Now, the piece that was, this was a rebuttal to um, to the wartime piece that ABC published. The ABC then went and found or commissioned a piece to counter Peter Wartime's piece, but not by an Australian Palestinian and not by, by a Palestinian academic, but from the UK. Just it begs the question, why wouldn't they get a, a yeah. counter piece from an Australian Palestinian? But even so, uh, that piece wasn't in some ways as strong as I think mine was. That's why I think he bought. I know. It was nowhere near as Well, it was on point. the legal issues, narrowly speaking, and it was a competent account of the legalities, and it made the point that, um, I mean, Wertheim's piece was part of this uh, permanent attempt to push away any solution to keep saying we wait for good faith negotiations, which is such bullshit. I mean, they have no intention for having good faith negotiations. So this is a way of permanently deferring any justice for the Palestinians. So it's true that the legal issues are important. The article, that other fellow's article, Katan, I think his name is, uh, made an important point that we don't have to wait for um, the parties to negotiate uh, some mutual agreement. Uh, states can be created because uh, the United Nations has the power to create a state. And the wonderful irony, which I pointed out, was that that's how Israel was created. Wertheim is protesting that you can't just make a state out of nowhere, but that, but Israel was created exactly like that. So it's cynical, hypocritical, inconsistent propaganda that he's pushing. So that was the legal paper. But, you know, in, I've been w w with this activist and, and advocacy business for a little while, but even I'm shocked and learning. And my piece was part of my own learning. I was trying to show how the history of this is very important to understand. I'm shocked and tried to point out in my article the extent to which there was never an intention to let the Palestinians have a Palestinian state. From the very earliest beginnings, from, from Herzl himself and onwards, it was very clear they were just more open and more honest then than they are now. This talk of negotiations in two states and going back to the peace process, it's all a lie and knowingly a lie, and it always was. So these early founders, Herzl and Wiseman, in public they would say they just want a Jewish home, but they said privately, and it's available, they wanted a state and the Palestinians were not to have equal status. They, they, they were to be expelled or or. or given some inferior status. This was always the intention. Mm -hmm. So the history of this and the way in which the Zionists connived with the big powers, with Britain, and of course later with America, that's a sordid and, and terrible story. I quote some very good uh, people who write about this. And and I think seeing the history helps us understand, it, it, it makes we not just more angry, but more militant, that we, we, we should be less willing to put up with the peace process talk, mm -hmm. which is just it constantly, permanently deferring a solution to this. I, I hadn't felt quite so strongly about it until I wrote this and saw clearly myself and started reading about the Balfour period. Yeah, It's the most terrible story. Most terrible story. I mean, and if I didn't know it, yeah. most people don't know it. Well, you talk about that truth-talking that the early Zionists did. I mean, Benjamin Netanyahu has been, like, at the forefront. It's just that they don't want to hear it or don't forefront it. He is exactly. really explicit in saying it. You know, Nasser, I point that out in my article because I'm a bit flabbergasted where what people didn't notice that the uh, Likud party has on its platform that there won't be a Palestinian state. What the fuck? I mean, you know, people don't, our politicians pretend that this is still some path towards 
two states. They have no, and he says it publicly. I quote him from Haaretz saying they want to crush Palestinian hopes for a state, for statehood. Now, why isn't anybody paying attention to this? You know, there's something wrong with our, uh, our, our playing nice. And and going and I'm a bit worried. You know me. I I, I think we're 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 too polite uh, uh, when we pretend that there's it's it's a bit of a, a charade that that we're engaged in some meaningful process where the other side has no intention of of permitting what we think is is a just solution. So uh, I, I, if this makes people angry, I think it's exactly the right re- response. Well, it should make them angry because our government is making all Australians complicit in it by, you know, RMIT uh, is engaging in a project with Albert Systems. The Victorian government's got a, uh, a grant of $250,000 for Australian uh, Victorian companies to uh, work with Israeli companies. You know, we've got so many, the Australian army has just bought some missiles from Israel. And this is after the Australian army stopped using Israeli mapping projects because the Israelis had left the back door in that software that allowed for them to track Australian tanks and Army movements. I mean, what the hell's going on? Yeah, yeah. no, that's exactly right. And it gives more impetus, I think, uh, and strength to to the BDS movement, which is one of the perhaps only uh, actions available to us. And and I often think of, uh, I often talk about the the case in Ireland where a, a young woman at the checkout didn't want to sell a grapefruit uh, because it was uh, the unions were were uh, on behalf of of South Africa, and that led to the the whole of Ireland. Um, boycotting um, South Africa. So that movement can grow when people take it seriously and understand they have to know what what the cause is. And I think that's what we're talking about. When people start to learn not only today, but how the whole history of this looks, then your motivation for supporting the boycott and political action becomes much stronger. Well, we know the world can react to an illegal occupation. Exactly. We've seen we've seen what's happened in Russia and Ukraine. Exactly. exactly. It would be hypocritical for us to just expect the same, wouldn't it? Well, it's, the media are not giving the same attention to Palestine, which is much worse in, in lots of respects. I mean, as you say, exactly. Ukraine, but see, Ukraine, well, Russia is an official enemy and, and Israel is not. And, and the whole foreign affairs has always been like that. When it's been official enemies, China or Russia or whoever it is at the time, when it's our allies, we pretend we don't see it. Peter, tell us a little bit about the BDS movement in Australia. We've only got a couple of minutes to go. We're an active group uh, that uh, have um, uh, detailed uh, proposals to pursue the international BDS uh, project, which was established uh, by Palestinian um, uh, civil society groups in about 2005, I think it was. And uh, it's a growing movement around the world. It has a number of principles. One is to advocate the return of Palestinians, to end the occupation and to give equal rights to Palestinians. It's important that the principle is not to, it's not directed at individuals, it's directed at organisations that are profiting from the criminal occupation. And what's very interesting, which people don't know, they're often, perhaps mostly, not Israeli. They're not Jewish. They're Caterpillar or Hewlett-Packard or Puma. These are not Israeli and not Jewish organisations. So it's not anti-Semitic, as they want to always uh, accuse us of. It's directed at people profiting from a criminal occupation. So it can be very powerful if it gets uh, the kind of attention, for example, which wasn't actually one of our initiatives, but the the, uh, project against the Sydney Festival here was a good example of how there's a very spontaneous uprising from people, artists and everybody, when they see the cause and, and see the force of of a boycott, and that was a very good example of what can be achieved. So that was quite inspiring, and I, and I think we could use that as an example. 
Indeed. I'm not sure if I've shared this story with you, Peter, but I got a phone call from an artist who performed, wasn't aware that there was a picket line, said to me, I performed, I don't know exactly what's going on. Can you tell me what's going on? I spent a few minutes on the phone with her. We agreed to catch up for lunch. We sat together. I took her through, you know, a Palestine 101, if you will, and a BDS 101. At the end of it, she said, you're right, I wish I hadn't performed. A week later, she sent me a heartfelt letter and said, I'm sorry I performed. Here's all the money the band earned and made oh a donation of her oh entire process. And it was five figures. It wasn't a little bit of money. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That's extraordinary. So, what a wonderful story. That should be written up somewhere. That's a wonderful example. Yeah, it's a wonderful example of how powerful BDS of actions can be as educational opportunities but also of, you know, a, a society of a collective standing up. Yeah, and how people can be inspired to, to, to take action when they know, when they find out. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Yeah. Peter, thanks so much for joining us and thank you for everything you do. No, thank you for the opportunity and the privilege. It's, it's, it's my honour. Thank you. Once the film out, Peter, we'll get you back on to talk about it and we'll tell all, all of our listeners where they might be able to go see it. And, and just to remind you, there are other parts of the story that perhaps we can follow up on in, in, in other parts of Palestine that we, we need to talk about. There's a lot more. Absolutely. Look forward to it. Thanks again, Peter. Thanks, Nash. Listeners, thanks for listening. Tell your friends, share the podcast, and remember there's never been a better time for a free Palestine. Wise men say Only fools, only fools are right, right.